0: Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich and the stars have aligned in my life because for the third time I am sitting across the screen from Kim John Payne. What a treat. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, we are just sitting across or maybe on the same same side as this of the stream of a nice river, Jenny. Let's imagine that, eh?
0: Yeah, it would be amazing. And maybe someday we'll get to meet in person because actually you've <laughs> met Jewel in person. That was something I yeah. learned from this book.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, we're very dear friends. We've become such good friends over the years. She's a real family friend. My girls love Jewel as well when she visits wow. and yeah, she's a, she's just a really deep thinking person. Yeah. yeah. Soulful person.
0: That is incredible. I'm a huge fan because I was like a teenager in the nineties. And so Jewel was some of my favorite music. And when I saw this in the book, my mouth dropped. So it's such a neat thing to. Meet someone to read their work, to have the unbelievable gift to talk to them about it, and then to continue on down the line and to read more and to read more. And so this has been such an awesome experience for me. I'm so grateful. We talked last year about your book, Simplicity Parenting, that has changed the lives of so many. And then we got to talk about your brand new book that came out this year, Emotionally Resilient, Tweens and Teens. And I personally got so much out of that. Our conversation was so incredible. But the book... Is just fill it's one you have to have on your shelf because there's so many reference points that you can go back to about standing in your own power and strengthening your family base camp and then I got to talk with Luis Fernanda Yosa which was a fantastic about beyond winning smart parenting in a toxic sports environment which immediately became one of my favorite books there is so much in here and I love Luis he's so energetic and it was fantastic to get to talk with him and here we are back again. And today we're talking about this book, Being at Your Best When Your Kids Are at Their Worst, Practical Compassion in Parenting. And I think heading into the new year, people are thinking about their relationships and how they relate with their kids. And so this is such an important topic and just another phenomenal book with so many practical things. And you write, I was trying to kind of figure it out. It's like you write in this way that is so relatable. I feel like you're talking directly to me. The words that you use, the storms, the struggles, the disorientation, all of these words, I think, oh, this is exactly how I feel. So you've been working with families for decades, and that shows.
1: Yeah, you know, parenting and working and raising kids is just the most important, but kind of the hardest job. So anyone daring to give advice to a parent, you know, we're in this totally together. And one, I'm really pleased to hear that, Jenny, that the books that I write strike you in that way, because one of the most important things is to not de-alpha a parent, like a parent needs to feel that they are in charge of their family's destiny, not some guy writing a book, right? Some guy writing a book needs to come alongside you. That's good. Some woman writing a book needs to come alongside you. And that's good. That's a good feeling like I'm not alone. But the feeling of I have to follow this complicated advice, it all makes sense. But gosh, can I do that? That's never a good feeling. So That's really lovely to hear that the books strike you in that way.
0: That is how it comes out. And what a cool way to put it, to D-alpha I mean, it's one of those things that when you walk away and you think, oh, I can do this. And I have some tools in my pocket and I am inspired and I can see things differently. I have some more compassion on myself and they're all that way. They're all just like speaking to your heart individually. Like you really know that's what it is. It's like you're actually in my home and you really know how this looks and how I'm struggling. And here's some practical answers for you. It's been such a gift to have read all of these books and I have a couple more still, which is great. I have the soul of discipline uh, still and I've got Waldorf games. So I'm excited. I love that there's more to come. So in this being at your best when your kids are at their worst, which is such a brilliant title, by the way, uh, because I think we can all be at our best when our kids are at their best. uh, But when they're at their worst is a different story. You had some really cool visuals. And that's another thing that you do so well is you Take a situation and you give a really solid visual with it that you can take with you anywhere, like, for example, turning down the tap, which I've talked to so many people about that. You know, check talk about that in Simplicity Parenting, but in this Emotionally Resilient Teens and Tweens, that was a big part, which is stop overloading our kids, basically. Turn down the tap. Then things will stop overflowing and being such a mess. So I think about that a lot, that visual. And you had really good ones in this book, too, that I have just been mulling over and thinking about. And one of them is about the knot, untangling the knot. So could you tell people about what that is and how we can use that visual in our parenting practices?
1: <laughs> you know, you pick up on the greatest things, Jenny. You know, there's all these little things, you know, as a writer, you put in a book and you wonder if that's ever going to sort of be picked up by many people. And you, every time you do this. Um, so, Yeah, the, um, I I was uh, a school counselor in a school for years and years and years. And also my background is in, uh, movement therapy and movement education and how to help. You know, that's another sort of hat that I happily wore for years because I wanted to choose areas in education that would have maximum impact on children who are overwhelmed, children who needed to work things out. And, and so playing games and moving with kids is one of those ways. So anyway, one particular class I taught, we would run down to this little shed where uh, we would have lots and lots of rope in there. I think it was about two, 300 yards of rope. And it was a big tangly mess because my dear colleague would just throw it back and not wind it up, my my co-teacher. And so, and he is a friend to this day, but oh my goodness. And so the children would go, yay. And Rowan would get his watch out and he would look at his watch and say, ready, go. And two children would run up to the little tower that was, oh, about four stories high. They'd run up the stairs and they would look down from above over where we were playing. And that's the first little metaphor is looking down from above, right? Being able to have that that view from above. And then the children would start untangling and they would try and break the record of how quickly they could do it. And they, that what they learned is that you, uh, well, two things. It's the same tendency when we're feeling rushed that always has us pulling on the rope. So we were challenging ourselves. We were trying to get something done quickly to break our record. But at the same time, we learned that you never, ever, ever, on a tangle wow. the, well, the way you get a tangle opened up is that you create space you open you open you open and the kids up the top in the tower would shout down things like jacob don't pull because it was actually always jacob who, who did <laughs> um <laughs> and uh we would open it and open it and open it You're know, like 300 yards of plastic rope Getting that out of a tangle and we could do it usually in three or four minutes. I'm showing off on their behalf now, Jenny, but they could could open it up so quickly. And there was this big shout and then we put the boundary on the field of of the game because the rope was all about marking out our boundary. And we would use it for all different shapes because I had some children who would rather run to London than get tagged in a tag Mm -hmm. game. And uh, then children would come down out the tower. And I thought, gosh, what a metaphor. What a metaphor for being a parent or for life is first of all, never pull on a tangle, create space. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself arguing with a person, and particularly with a child, just call it create space come back to it, circle back, say to a child, you know what, this is really not going well right now. We both so need to take some space. Let's just have a little bit of time, you know, because the average age of a child, if a child's nine, the average is nine minutes for the adrenaline and cortisol to drain down, give or take a few minutes. So if you're arguing with a child and they're getting all head up or they're arguing with a sibling, then it's about for an eight-year-old, eight minutes, add a few minutes. If they're very elevated, take away a few minutes. If it's just an ordinary kind of argument and just allow those minutes and just go do something. I think of this as the magic of tidy up, just go tidy up, just walk around and do something that is boring and familiar. And I, I don't mean this randomly, boring and familiar helps bring us out of our uh, amygdala, right? Right. And it also helps the kids uh, see that we're doing something for them and their mirror neurons fire. And their mirror neurons uh, in their brain are in the emotional center as well as the action, the doing center. And so if they see us calming down, through uh, folding laundry is a good one. You know, it's it's like family origami, you know, just folding, folding the... Wiping down the counter as 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 kind of slow slowly as you can, just wipe it down. Sweep the floor. Straighten the bookshelf. Because the kids are really familiar with that. They're really familiar with it. And when they see you doing it, their mirror neurons fire. And mirror neurons are are one of the quick releases or overrides of adrenaline and cortisol. So if we do something familiar to a child and they see it, it signals to them safety, security. And so the drain down of adrenaline and the amygdala hijack, you know, that's taken over the brain for both us and a child. It's really a fast track to being, because it's, it's all very well and good saying, just stay chill, just calm, stay calm. It's like, no, 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 no. That That's the being at your best book just gives a series of little exercises of how to do that. And this thing that I just mentioned now is a way, one way of not pulling on the knot, of not getting into it with a child, of not getting elevated, of not getting inwardly, elevated and even frustrated or furious outwardly trying to hold it together because that frightens little kids because you Mm -hmm. you're outwardly you know you're stealing yourself and you're not going to shout but inwardly you're surging um that's scary because little children tune in to our inner world don't they they really tune in so that's just one quick example Right at the beginning of our chat today of the gift of tidy up Mm -hmm. and how tidy up creates space.
0: Right. Right. And I love your books because they're like interesting reference books. You know, I think in my mind, when I think of reference books, they're not interesting. I think they're boring. But your books are these fascinating great reads that sit on yourself that you can come back to and say, oh, wait. And I loved in this part about untangling the knot. And then it, it was woven throughout these different phrases that we could say. And I have in times in my parenting taken phrases like these and written them out and put them on the refrigerator or taped them to a cupboard because sometimes you just need the words. And so you could, you had all of these phrases in there like, I can see this is hard for us. I can see this is not going so well. Can you help me understand how you see it? which that to me would be almost like that overhead view. You talked in there about how so many times they don't see things the way that we do. Tell me what's bugging you about this or even just saying that came out wrong. Can you give me a moment? It's not what I really mean. And so, like I said, just a beautiful reference book that someone could have that they could go to and say, okay, now I have the words. Sometimes I think we don't have the words. We haven't learned them anywhere. So I love that that was in your book. It's so practical. And I have been thinking about the knot thing a lot because just don't pull it. It's a pretty simple visual.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, Jenny? Because inwardly, I think we can all sense at an instinctual gut level when we're pulling on the knot when when things are getting tighter and more gnarly. And the harder we try to pull, the worse it gets. The more we try and sort it out, the worse it gets. Um, and in North American culture in particular, there's this thing of always trying to talk things through. Right. And um, so often it actually requires just actually just leaving it and circling back, giving some space circling back like that one that one sentence that you that you mentioned that i I talk about in the book you know what that came out wrong just give me a moment i remember walking in the door once uh jenny and uh I was carrying, there was winter time and I was carrying a box of groceries and my daughter had run in and she'd left her backpack right in the door and it was dark and I tripped over the backpack. The groceries went everywhere and yes, the dozen eggs were at the top and I found myself speaking in a sort of a barely constrained frustration to her. And so I turned the light on, saw the debris, and just we both just looked at each other. There was this moment, because uh, I had already said, would you please put your backpack on the hook? You know, and blah, blah, blah. And oh, that is, yeah. look at this. It's stuff. so relatable. It's all over look at this. Oh, my goodness, you know. And I was kind of guilting her a, a little bit. So I said, look give me a moment. And so I just went and and I could almost hear her saying, Daddy, take several moments. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) You could could take a few Uh, because she's used to this, that give me a moment. And then she's used to having a human being return. So I took a moment, did this compassionate response practice, which we can come back to later just drew in my frustrations, remembered what a beautiful kid she was and what often a good daddy I can be on a good day, you know, Mm -hmm. came back to her and said, sweetheart, look, hang on, come over. Can you help me understand what happened? And she said, yes, the puppy, the puppy was whining. And you know when the puppy whines like that, it pees on the floor. And she was so right. She had dumped her backpack and run over and taken the puppy out so it didn't pee on the floor. Bless her little heart, you know. Little kid being on to that. I felt so bad, you know. And then um, I said, okay, but look, love, what I meant to say, and this is the sentence again, uh, this followed up the can you help me understand. So what I meant to say was, do you remember the hook we put just there, love? You see, it's just a few inches away from where you dumped your backpack because she often did it, right? So we put a hook there. So all she had to do was reach up and put it on the hook. What I meant to say was, do we need to move the hook even closer? Like, was the hook in the wrong place? And she said, no, I think in winter we need to leave a night light like on so I can see the hook. And I said, okay, let's try it. Let's try it. And all through that winter, she put her backpack on her hook, which sounds like such a nothing little thing, but it was lovely, actually, that she was able to do that.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist it's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000hours to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash 1000hours. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly, They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops' price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off goodchap.com slash outside120, code outside120.
1: But that came out of the what I meant to say, because that came out wrong.
0: Yes. And it came out of, can you tell me from your perspective? Because I think so often we jump to the conclusion, oh, this kid is a slob. Oh, this kid is irresponsible. Oh, why are they making my life so hard? And that's one of the things you talk in there too. We're already at our max. And so these little things come and they happen and they sort of send us over the edge. But if you take a step back and you're able to see their perspective, so often they have one. And it's a valid one. And we're just looking at things differently. That's a story people are really going to remember the nightlight and the fact that she was trying to help in a different way.
1: It was interesting, Jenny, because the coming in of the house uh, um, from school was smooth for months actually after that, which again, any parent listening to this would appreciate it, but most people, other people wouldn't, but it just, it just helped that out. But the thing about that came out wrong mm-hmm. is that it's very catchy. It's very, very catchy. And I notice her and her sister are still to this day, say it, and they're big now, wow. you know, they're, they're, you know, 19, they're grown, growing up and uh, that came out wrong. Okay, what I meant to say was, and it's very catchy that you can reframe, but the th- really interesting thing about reframing that I talk about in the book is it's you get to say, What was wrong Mm -hmm. because there was it was wrong leaving the backpack in the door, it wasn't okay to do that, you know, wrong, or it just wasn't helpful. There were consequences to it, things happened, yeah. And we had to clean up the eggs together, it was all gooey, and Mm -hmm. you know, but this piece of you say what you're going to say, you don't have to just swallow it and just think, okay, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible father. I just was frustrated. I just let out a shout or whatever. It's like, no, you let out the frustration a little bit or a lot. Yeah. You gather yourself, you give yourself space. If you just look at the sequence of events, you said something was frustrating, shouldn't have said it. Mm-hmm. You did something, shouldn't have done it. You take some space, you come back and you ask a child, well, how do they see it? Mm-hmm. How do you see it? And then what I meant to say was that little force, little, little, little steps in whatever way we do it is modeling to kids the way they can do it, right? Because one of the, one of the really big values, we all have values in our families, like top of the list values. But one of the, the big values in my family has been, it's okay to see and feel things differently. It's okay to see it differently to your sister, to your brother, to me, to your mom. And it's also okay to feel things differently. We don't all feel the same way. So if I see something differently to you, it's not like, oh, ha, 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 that's a lie. It's not that. It's like, no, 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 sweetheart. In our family, it's okay to see things differently. It's okay to feel things differently. It really is okay. And the way you see it, is just as true for you as the way your brother sees it. That one. There's another one, by the by the way, Jenny. That one over and over and over. Like mm-hmm. hardly a week would pass uh, where that that one wouldn't be said. And now that my older daughter is a, my, my daughter is a, a kindergarten teacher she, in training. Oh. Um, she uh, she's just young, but she's found wow. her direction and working wow. with little kids. Pricey Bless pricey. her. The, That's um, exhausting. Yeah. But she uses it all the time. She says, come on, boys, come on over now. You tell me how you see it. Oh, no, no. You know, wait a moment, Miguel, because you see it differently. I know. But Jacob, how do you see it? Oh, Miguel, you see it differently, don't you? And she's just a kid, you know, a young woman. And yet it's very catchy, that way of working. Now, regardless of whether you use that as a kindergarten teacher or in your corporate life or with the other guys on your construction site, it's just like, hang on a minute. That's the thing
0: about your books all the way through every single one is that it's not just parenting lessons, it's life lessons, that things that we can use in our everyday life. And I know you've said that you get letters back from people who maybe learned some of your principles as a child. Maybe you were in their school or your programs were in their school and they'll send you a letter two decades later and say, I'm using this, I'm using that, I'm using this in the corporate world. I'm using this with my family, extended family. So that's a beautiful thing about your books that there is this lifelong benefit. To so many of these things. And so they're really worthwhile reading. I think that you give a lot of hope. There was a lot in this book about making small changes. And even that, those little phrases, how are you looking at this? And that came out wrong. And you had a quote in here about someone who, when they do a campaign or they try to win this, different businesses, and they didn't win, that sometimes they only needed a small shift, 2% shift. And there's not an overhaul. We're not, it's not overwhelming. We're not looking at an overhaul. But then you do also say, on the other hand, that even though it is a small shift, that if we don't make the shift, it can be very damaging. And I think it's important to know. There was a sentence in here where you're talking about putting a bandage on the emotional wounds. And someone had said, she told me that, well, I might eventually get over it and move on. She did not. You know, so that the parent, I think sometimes thinks, oh, this isn't that big of a deal and we're going to get over it. But to the child, it is a very big deal. Yep. That stuck out yeah, to me. Yeah, making the
1: repair. It's It's got um, a, a very good friend of mine uh, who specializes, even I learn a lot from her. She's also very interested in developmental brain science. It's a long interest of mine. I learn a lot from Dee. Dee Coulter is her name. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that ideally a repair, when you're frustrated and something bursts out of you, ideally a repair should be made in the first 30 minutes. Wow that if you can circle back and make the repair, that, that can you help me understand the, you know, that came out wrong, love, that, that really did, didn't it? That came out harsh. What I meant to say was, yeah. and a lot of the book, when d, d first told me that I thought, oof 30 minutes. Okay. That's quick because how do we get a hold of ourselves and be able to move back, come alongside our child and make the repair before they take it on board as another little part of nerve activation, of being nervous and anxious. Moving in, making that repair soon, I think is quite ambitious. And that's what a lot of the book was based on, actually.
0: Wow. And I think this was another example where you gave a practical, real world, tangible thing to hold on to, which is if our child is bleeding or they've fallen and scraped themselves, then we put the band aid on soon. We don't wait an hour or two for it to get dirty and infected and that type of thing. We address it when we can. Yeah. And so that's something that I'll take with me. And then there was, you've talked a lot about tidying in the sense of it's boring and brings us back to ground level. But then you also talk about tidying. In in this relatable way, at least for me, where sometimes we have stuff and we put our stuff somewhere because we don't have a place to put it. And I think some of that stems from overwhelm. It stems from lack of time. It stems from lack of capacity. I may not be an, an organized, clean and <laughs> whatever person. It's it's eluding me a little bit. Maybe I haven't taken the steps to simplify, but the point is, is that stuff tends to accumulate. And I think we've had those situations where we put something on the counter and then someone else put something on the counter and then everyone puts stuff on the counter and then all of a sudden it's too much. And you talked about that with our emotions, which I thought was really relatable. So can you tell parents about how to sort of keep that accumulation from happening emotionally so that we're in a better spot?
1: Yeah. In the, in the book, um, that's where I'm actually, interestingly, Jenny. that's where I mentioned Jewel and her, uh, I was talking about that with her, uh, one day we, we do workshops occasionally together and we we're doing this workshop somewhere up in the mountains. I think it was in Colorado someplace. Anyway, the, um, I was talking about stuff accumulates and she said, you mean the biographical stuff, right? And I said, yeah, absolutely. It's the biographical, it's the way it builds up and builds up and we don't deal with it. And she said, yeah, if it's hysterical, it's historical. You know, the singer-songwriters have got this way of just framing things in, in very few words uh, that I just so respect. And this thing that that w- where stuff accumulates, it's got a little bit more to do with when we don't deal with a situation so well, when we don't actually make the repair and make it relatively quickly, a repair can even be just sitting beside a child saying, whoa, I don't know where that where that came from. Or a repair could be, come over and sit at the counter, love. That was, oof. I just remembered a story about your grandpa. That's a repair. You know, do you know when he was young, he used to be able to, you know, and then, you know, take the subway right across town. And he was just eight years old. And and you don't add, and he wasn't reported to child protective services. And you just tell a story and really, Mom, really? That's a repair. But if you don't make it, if you don't make those little micro repairs, mm-hmm. um, and the micro repairs, do I want to just really emphasize don't have to be the big knockdown drag out conversations. It's just that you're now a, a repair is just that you're regulated. You know, in in this book, I recount, I don't know, Ginny, you probably did catch it, but I recount the story, I think I wrote about this, about Joseph Chilton Pierce. And I wrote about- Yes, I can't believe
0: you've seen him. You were at a conference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the West Coast. And I was lucky enough to be there. And he said, if you take a cell out of a living heart, which you apparently can- Extraordinary. And you put it uh, in a certain solution and you look at it under a microscope, it will continue to beat. It's amazing. It'll continue to beat and it'll beat for a, a long time and then it'll begin to fibrillate. And then uh, after it fibrillates, it will expire. Okay. And he said, however, if you take a cell from a completely different heart and place it near the expiring, the fibrillating heart, Heart, even a heart that's really panicking, the cell that's panicking, and you place it close enough, mm. then the fibrillating cell will recover and the two will start beating in unison together. And his point was what is true on a cellular level wow. is true with our children on an emotional level. It's not, and he he actually said, this is not even a metaphor. It's just, a, uh, my words now, micro, macro of exactly the same situation. So when our children are fibrillating, if we can make these little tiny repairs, the, the ones that you don't even, they're not big, let's talk about it, things like I mentioned, it's just, oh, come and just sit. Just, come and, I'm going to tell you a story about when daddy was little and he got into big trouble right, they're the best ones, right, mm-hmm. Um, a little one or even a teenager who is emotionally fibrillating senses that you're back in yourself and that they can co-regulate with you because you're now back in yourself enough to tell a story, just right. barely scrambled into that place, right. but you've made that little adjustment. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by that.
0: Yeah. For parents of teens, tweens, talking about being back in yourself, you talk about being on the defense and what that does to the balance of power. So, can you tell us about that situation? Maybe when a child says something that's untrue or that you perceive as mean or something like that, and we go on the defensive. And this is in your book, Emotionally Resilient Teens and Tweens, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, these themes are, are like a narrative arcs through a lot of a lot of my books. When a child is is being emotionally muscular and they're coming, you know, at you like this, it's really hard to not to get angry, right? To get you know even inwardly angry. But the way I look at anger. Is that anger? I don't know if I write this in the book or not, Ginny, but anger. Uh, oh, I think in the podcast, I talk about it. Anger is just an emotional attempt to redress an emotional imbalance. And what I mean by that, if we make ourselves hard or we make ourselves big, it's because we're feeling small. If we shout, it's often because we're feeling unheard. And there's this piece in the book that I talk about is really taking some time to identify what is it that triggers you one dad said, I get really triggered when I live in this kind of uh, sort of suburban, urban type of area, and I do this run with my kids. I pick up this one, I drop them off there, I pick this one up, then I drop them up, then I go round again, and I pick that one up, that one up, and I'm all the time going through traffic. We get home, I park the car, and they just get out the car and run inside, slam the door, and I'm left sitting there feeling invisible. Mm. Wow. And he said, it makes my blood boil.
0: If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. When the skies open up, While others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing vessies, stormburst boots, to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's v-e-s-s-i.com slash outside for 15% off your first order.
1: And it was a story that I think every parent can relate to. So in my conversation with him, because I still speak with parents in my little you know parent coaching practice day in, day out. And so in my conversation with him, I said, well, how could that? Change and he said, and he almost said as a throwaway thing, Well, a simple thank you would be enough. And I said, Whoa, whoa, whoa hang on. It's and he went on, you know, mm-hmm. a, and they're so ungrateful. And I said, No, no, so, so a simple thank you would be enough. Hang on, would it? And he said, mm-hmm. Yes. And I said, Well, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do a simple thank you. So he talked to his kids about his frustration because he said he felt invisible, right? And all this stuff he was doing to pull this off, and he talked to them, we worked out that he would talk to them when they're in good shape because a lot of parenting is just laying in wait for the right moment to have the conversation, right? So he had the conversation with his two boys in the, at the right time, with his two kids. And then they did it. Thanks, Dad. And off they were. And he said it wasn't a, a, it didn't take long. It was only the second week. They said, Thanks, Dad. Can we take anything in? Because that was the other thing. He would be carrying there. There were a hockey player. He'd be carrying all their equipment in. They just got out and ran in the house. And they they joined the dots of that. You know, Ginny, there's this there's this statement. I make in the book of this, uh, way of greeting. I don't, you probably picked this up, but in, in Southern Africa, when I was in Southern Africa, I would often hear this way that people would greet each other in the marketplaces and so on. And they would say, Subanu, Subanu. They would call it out really joyfully. And it means, I see you. I see you. Mm-hmm. And then the refrain, what a person oh. says back, like, Jenny, you know, if you were to say Subanu to me, I would say to you, which means, so now I am here. Mm. Now I am here. I'm only here if you see me. (laughs) And and this is so true with our parenting, isn't it? That what triggers us is when we don't feel seen. So anyone listening to this, to your lovely podcast and to this one, If you've got a moment to think, where is it I'm being made to feel invisible, not seen? Because right there, really, it's right there is usually the the trigger point. That's where it all begins. Because this daddy said he would get out the car and quote, unquote, he he would walk in the house like Clint Eastwood. (laughs) He'd be just looking to pick a fight because he was frustrated and he got persnickety. So this invisibility and circling around that a little bit and saying, really, really practically, like this dad did about the car journey, where are the points that I feel invisible? Another mum said she felt invisible because she did her ages, her nine, she had nine-year-old twin girls, and she did all their washing and ironing and folding. And they would, they would just dump it on the floor. They wouldn't even put it in their drawers very well. And it made her blood boil, but she tried to keep it together. But it would, you know, to you mix my metaphors, it would poison the well uh, of her relationship with them. And so she figured out a way to have them participate in that. And uh it was a longer story, but they participated in the doing of the laundry in a age-appropriate way and doing what they could. And it was and they never again dumped their stuff on the floor because they had a part in doing it, but she felt A small, I said to her in our conversation, I think you need to take a victory lap. That was brilliant. Mm. Brilliant.
0: Oh, and I love that part of the book, too. Just celebrating, celebrating the good. And you had something because it reminded me of my grandma. You know, my grandma used to say, let not thine own lips praise thee. (laughs) You know, (laughs) (laughs) so there is a cultural thing, though, about not. And then yours was self-praise is no praise at all.
1: That was my mother.
0: But that we do have, yes, we do have these moments of subtle greatness is the way that you put it. And to celebrate them and to go to sleep smiling, think of the goodness. And so I I love that too, the victory lap idea. You know, this book, Being at Your Best When Your Kids Are at Their Worst, you talk about harmony, addiction, addiction. And how that can be a troublesome. You talk about disoriented kids quite a bit. You talk about the changes in parenting styles all the way through for generations. You talk about ways to simplify the home and you talk even about scheduling in nature. You cover screens in here. You cover action reactions. So I'm saying all this because you talk about our nonverbal communication. This sort of survival mode. And I'm saying all this because I think it's a book that people want to have on their shelves being at your best when your kids are at their worst, that you'll get so much. Um, And then the whole compassionate parenting response, uh, which we didn't even get to, but that's all in there, just laid out and just easy to understand and easy to relate to. And it is a compassionate book talking about compassionate parenting. So I'm wondering if we could end with one story that really stuck out to me. I would be curious to know. Well, my question is kind of twofold. You talk about the changes in parenting and you have, you know, 2000 to the present, 2005 to the present, raised on praise, explaining a kid into submission. I'm sort of curious where we're at now in terms of parenting. If it is sort of parenting in this information overwhelm age, I wonder if there's any trends that are coming out, but sort of beyond that, the story in there about a boy who he could, his mom couldn't buy him the bicycle that he wanted. And you call it Project Bike Restoration, about a boy named Sam and his brother. And the story sort of centers around our lack. And I think so often we look at our lack and it's such a negative thing. Our lack financially, maybe our lack, just our, all sorts of things that we lack as humans, as parents. But in this story, the lack turned into something extremely positive. And so I think that would be um, a heartwarming and inspiring story to end with and knowing that we can make small changes, but also that we don't have to have it all in order for our kids to be successful and have experiences that really add to their lives.
1: That's such a dear little story, isn't it? Because again, it's so little, you know, but this mum had um, cleaned things out. She'd read the Simplicity Parenting book. She had decluttered. She was determined to not clutter uh, again. And she was driving with the boys in the neighbourhood, and it was there was a tag sale um, out and uh, lots of stuff, like a yard sale. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff out on the yacht, and they spotted this bike, and they said, "Mom, Mom, can we get the bike? Can we look at it? Can we just look at it, please?" You know Mm -hmm. And so she stopped, and it was an old Ginny. You're too, you're too young to remember dragsters, but dragsters were these bikes with banana seats, with high handlebars, and they in the '70s they were the coolest things with a big sissy bar at the back and. Oh my goodness, and streamers coming out of the handlebars. Oof, seriously cool. And there was one, but it was all broken down. It was kind of rusted out. And they said, Can we get it, Mom? That is the coolest bike. And so she and the guy said, Well, look, five dollars. And I'll and I'll give you another one as well. It's in boxes. And she went, Oh, thanks. <laughs> so anyway, um, she 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 paid five dollars. And, and uh because they'd been nagging her for months, uh, wanting a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And she just couldn't afford it. She was a single mum, you know, like single mum, double mum. Such a silly term, single mum, double mum, right? Mm-hmm. Double, double everything, double love too. But anyway, um, so uh they get at home and the boys lay out the um a big tarp on the floor and they be, like their dad used to do when he lived there you know mm-hmm. and uh they began cleaning it all up with the toothbrush that like dad used to do and she sat with them and they cleaned up all the parts and anyway they they got all the parts and they began to put them together and and some kind of newish parts looked like they were there but that must have been in the box the mystery of that was revealed and um later on and uh started building this bike and the kids from the neighborhood came over and they were and there was this scene and the mum would you know would be out there with them and really connected really very connected this boy uh Sam in the story by the way Jenny she'd been having some struggles with him which is kind of why she bought the bike anyway they uh they this it turns out that uh Sam had been um, walking uh, several blocks away down to a local bike store and all the local you know the, the local young guys working at local bike store with very colorful tattooed arms mm-hmm. had been keeping parts for him they were the, it was in the sand bucket and he would bring the sand bucket home and he would get advice from them he was you know using them as consultants about what to do and so he built the bike, and then it came back one day, all painted. And the mum said, "Where did you get that done, Sam?" And said, so, "Oh, some friends in town did it. It was over at the at the Harley Davidson repair <laughs> shop with all these big." Bearded dudes. And wow. the deal was, I don't know if I mentioned this in the story, Jenny, but the deal was if they painted it for him with stripes up the side and mm-hmm. like a real kind of custom paint job, that uh, and they repaired the seat for him, that they would get the first ride around the parking lot. And so. <laughs> People are so cool. Said,
0: I mean, isn't that just a view into how incredible human beings can be? I love that.
1: Because I didn't write it because, you know, in a book, there's a limited amount of space. But Mm -hmm. but Sam and his brother, little kids, had been hanging out with these Harley Mm -hmm. dudes, you know, took them around, invited the mother and and introduced them, you know. And they said, Mommy, they, they use some bad words sometimes, but they're really nice, you know, and Anyway, the mum. This is the finish of the story. But the mum said this had created such a little community. The other other kids would bring their bikes over to our garage and would and they would fix them. But she said we uh, had to. That was so sweet because the, the little boys would bring the bike up to their room at night yes. and they would. She said she had to wash bed. it.
0: They had to wash them every day.
1: Wash, she had to wash. <laughs> the tires off because they had to wheel it through the house because they wanted it beside them when they slept. And they built that thing. Now, this is years ago. Fast forward now, I've got to imagine that was a little tiny, little bit of a building block to those kids managing their lives as young adults because they'd be young adults now. and That's got to have helped them, right?
0: Yes. I mean, you talk about all of the things. Grit, process, family connection, creative thinking, impulse control, self-motivation, respect, value, appreciation, purpose. And I even think learning that there are these sort of microcosms of communities out there that you can join in to find your people, to find your community, yeah. that they would have seen that firsthand. So many things. And
1: you don't judge people. These are the Harley dudes. Mm-hmm. Or what? It, you know, like... They're just good people. That, yeah. But, you know, you probably <clears throat> recall, Jimmy, but one of the figures I quote is that uh, by the time a nine-year-old now is out of college or in the workforce, mm-hmm. um, over 65% of employment will be self-employed, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I've got to guess that these two little boys building this thing would have developed the grit, the determination, because when you're self-employed, no one gets you out of bed. You've got to be really self-motivated and you've got to reach out to other communities for help when you don't know to make something work. Like the technology you and I are are talking on now, I bet you we had help setting this up. I know I did. Um, You know, you reach out and that's what self-employment's about because sometimes people say to me, oh, all this simplifying and all this stuff... That's so nice, but that's all in the past. And I think, oh, no, 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 no. That's the future. Giving our kids space to problem solve, being at our best, moving in alongside them and helping them work like this, having our kids see that we can get a hold of our emotions and be self-regulated. Because in business, oh my goodness, there are so many times in a day where you could get annoyed with someone and blow it right really r- yes. and you can't you can't yes. do that so if, the, if we keep showing our children mm. we can be emotionally self-regulated mm-hmm. that we can get get it wrong emotionally and yes. then make the repair isn't that what wow. is a skill that isn't that a wow. skill that will be more and more and more valuable yes. not less more yes.
0: And that phrase of blow it is so interesting because it goes back to that sentence that sometimes we get over things, but other people don't. And in a family situation, a lot of times there's no option but to sort of move forward together where you're at, but not in the business world. Someone could say, well, I'm out. There are these consequences. And so to learn now this compassionate response practice and all of these different things that will help so much in our day-to-day life, both now and in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Another wonderful book. If people are interested, and this one came out in, well, it came out in 2019, but fortuitous timing yeah. for everyone who yeah. was stuck at home and, and dealing with a lot of extra stressors being at our worst. It's
1: true, Ginny. Yeah, unfortunately, the sales of that book just completely went off the charts when mm-hmm. COVID hit. Yes, yes, and because I, people I, I just wish that hadn't been the case, but I'm glad the book sure. was was yeah. to people. Yes.
0: Yeah. And people can find you at Simplicity Parenting, which you are a weaver of words. It was interesting to hear you say that about Jewel, because I find that you are such a weaver of words and you're an athlete. So it's an interesting combination there. But Simplicity Parenting, because it's a beautiful world, small doable steps to a simpler, more connected home life. You talk about creating the home life that you dreamed of, Less worry, happier kids, better relationships, more confidence. I mean, these are the words, these are the things that people are looking for. So they can find that at simplicityparenting.com. You really have a lot. You have trainings and podcasts and private consultation. And so there's so much there. And you have your whole child sports as well. You have a lot. And the Simplicity Parenting Institute and the Center for so- Social Sustainability. So
1: yeah, people can that's come to the you. Social sustainability is like the big umbrella, Jenny. And then Mm -hmm. Underneath that, we have all these, you know, basically all these little divisions or streams that flow. And we have, I think at last count, we have around 1200 simplicity parenting coaches and group leaders and care professionals that we've trained around the world. When I think of that, it's just a thrilling thought that. And it's so quiet. It's such a little grassroots movement Mm -hmm. that there are parents doing this simple little training because it would be ironic if it was complicated, right? Um, And they're doing this simple little training and getting groups of other parents together and saying, we can simplify. We can give children a childhood. We can declare peace in this undeclared war on childhood. And you're not alone. And that's why we keep on training people to be these grassroots uh, leaders within their community. It's it's really thrilling to see yeah. how this has grown.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kim. What a treat. I can, I really can't, it's like, I it gotta pinch me. I couldn't even believe that we got to talk the first time and hear the third conversation and to have met Luis has just been such um, a fantastic ride and amazing path and this book really is life changing. And I like books also that give you conversation topics. I think because the concepts are relatable, it makes it easy to go talk to someone about it, to talk to a friend to say, hey, listen to what I read, or what do you think about this? And it just makes life more interesting. So thank you for being here and for taking this time with us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Jenny.
2: Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.